This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. What will you choose? No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Hello and welcome to the Real EFL podcast, the podcast solely dedicated to teams in the English Football League. We have a new guest on the podcast this week offering you a different kind of insight than what you normally see in the media, online or on TV. Previously on this podcast, we've had ex-players and head coaches come on and tell their stories, such as Andy Crosby and Luke Chadwick. However, today we have someone from behind the curtain to tell you how football clubs operate behind the scenes when it comes to recruiting players in the EFL. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by League Two side Barrow's first team recruitment analyst and scout, Joseph Harvey, who is here to tell you all about how he got into scouting, as well as the tremendous work that goes on behind the scenes at Holker Street. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and I hope you all enjoy the following episode. And if you do, please leave us a rating on the podcast platform of your choice, five stars, hopefully, and a nice review if you're feeling super generous. It would mean a lot to us. Anyway, you're not here to listen to me rambling on. You're here for Joe. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's amazing to have you on. One thing, when I when I interview, whether it be because usually players, they love football and they're growing up and they want to be a professional and they go into but when I, when I speak to coaches or, 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 or analysts or recruitment analysts, scouts, etc., I always am fascinated to hear their story because, you know, pe- people have different reasons why they got into into coaching or scouting, you know, and sometimes from the outside looking in, you think these people are crazy because you see the turnover in certain positions and you see the stress that goes on. And as I said, to you off camera personally I know a lot of people and I see the stress that they're under and these kind of roles especially whether it be coaching positions or scouting positions what made you want to get into to, to football as a scout um well I was never going to be a footballer that was pretty clear from quite a young age really but I always loved it um I got into coaching when I was really young so my mum's actually football mad which is a little bit different to most people's introduction to football I mean my dad also does like football um, but my mum's huge on football back at a time really when women's football was not popular and was mm. not the big thing in this country. And she used to coach. She coached under 10s, under 11s, under 12s teams, the local area. And 
I was kind of 13, 14, going down, helping, really enjoying it. Um, and I kind of knew from a teenage age that I wanted to, you know, do my level one and get involved and, and, and do volunteering stuff. Did I ever see it as a career option? No. Um, I did okay at school. I wasn't the cleverest person in the world, but, you know, I got some decent GCSE results and, you know, I went off to college to study media related stuff. I never, you know, said to myself that I'm going to work in the football industry. And I think for most people, you don't grow up thinking that you can work in the football industry. It's either a footballer or you're not doing it. Hmm. Um, so it was never an option for me. It was never something that I massively pursued. And off the back of the coaching, I saw the talent ID qualification online, the FA one, you know, it's like free and it takes an hour to do. And and I completed that just as a kind of box ticking exercise. But then from there realized, oh, this is actually a thing and you can actually do this, you know. Um, and that was when I kind of looked at, oh, well, maybe instead of volunteering just with like the coaching stuff, I could volunteer and do some scouting. And that was kind of my first foray into it, really. There's a bit of a revolution at the moment. I, I say at the moment, it's been probably going on for the last four or five years where people are working in football behind the scenes at clubs or even as coaches without having played. And I know that irritates certain people. Like I think Harry Redknapp did an interview recently where he was giving it socks about people who've never played coaching and et cetera, whatever people think of that. That's fine. That's your own opinion. But like you look at people now, like Will Steele and his two brothers, what a talented family, by the way, of coaches who have all got into football as coaches and managers without having played. And you see guys like, as you, we said off camera, Dan Ashworth, who is tipped with going to Manchester United for obscene money, by the way, for a sport and the record, which is absolutely yeah. wild. I mean, like, do you think, I suppose the question I want to ask you is, do you think this is this was a really, I don't want to use the word luck, but at the moment caused us that bit of revolution. People are more willing now to give opportunities to those that didn't work in football, that didn't, you know, weren't players or, or you know, growing up. Yeah, I, th I think you're completely right. I think that I kind of hit my early 20s right around the time that this revolution started. Mm -hmm. Um I was on Twitter and it's called X now and I'm posting um, analysis content to do with the team that I support, um, recruitment related stuff. Again, not really knowing at all that this is what I wanted to do, but, um, you know, just doing it for fun. But the eyes that were getting on that content, the, the kind of graphic design media stuff, that the general skills mm -hmm. that younger people have now coming out of school, having been on computers and iPads, et cetera. You know, it just got eyes on and and, and as you say, scouts and, and staff behind the scenes that are multifaceted in what they can offer seem to be really thriving at the moment. So, you know, yes, you've got older, more experienced scouts, maybe even scouts that have played the game who potentially do have a better eye or a more knowledgeable eye than, than younger scouts like myself. But, you know, there are other things that we can offer, such as the data analysis and the video analysis and also the presentation skills and the IT literacy that, that they can't really compete with. So it's been a bit of a changing of the guard. Um, and also it's been a little bit of a sticky period in terms of, you know, those more experienced older heads are still in the senior mm. positions and they've had to bend and realise a little as everybody else around them has bought into the Brentford model and the Bright Brighton model and go, oh, okay, like we need one of these young uns. And, and then all of a sudden they go, well, actually we need two of them. And then all of a sudden they turn around and the whole department, the average age is 25 and everybody is 
a, a complete nerd, basically, rather than an ex-pro. And I saw the Harry Redknapp, Harry, Harry Redknapp thing that you're um, commenting on there. And, you know, I, I do get it to an extent. A, a huge inspiration for me is our manager, Pete Wilde, who, you know, he wasn't a footballer um, and had many a non-footballing job for many a year before kind of not falling into it because he'd always loved coaching. You can go off and listen to some of his interviews about it, but, you know, there is a pathway for it now, whether it's coaching, whether it's analysis on performance or recruitment side. And like you say, even all the way up to new roles like director of football. Well, I mean, you said about Pete Wilde, but Stuart, May- Stuart Maynard, who's now at Notts County, obviously, he he was with BT as I think it was like an operations officer or it was something like that for 19 years. He played, he played like, you know, amateur level or semi-pro even. He wasn't yeah. a professional footballer. But yeah, he was working with BT and then now he's, you know, a head yeah, coach. A tree surgeon so. at one point. A tree surgeon. Yep. <laughs> wow, that is amazing. I love stories like that. I really do. I absolutely yeah. love stories like yeah. that. And it also shows as well, because I think it's never too late, I suppose, to get into coaching or get into management. You know, you can you can jug- juggle your passion. I mean, the best, the best story is, I know it's, told so often but Maurizio Sarri was a banker mm. you know he was a banker and now he's coaching in the Champions League against Bayern Munich for Lazio it's absolutely fascinating but and I also just wanted to say LinkedIn is often touted as kind of the best place to get your your work seen and to get job opportunities and it probably are definitely as I should say but maybe not now as much since um, someone bought the app over Twitter was an yeah. unbelievable place to get your work seen. I mean, old Twitter I'm talking about, and I say old Twitter is like Twitter kind of during COVID, that, roughly that yeah. time. It was unbelievable. The, the main the main example I'd use for that is Jay Sochich, who um, who ran Blades Analytics yes. as a Sheffield United supporter. And he was my inspiration behind what I was doing at the time. Um, I was nowhere near as good as him. And, you know, the stuff that he and the people that he's worked with over the years produced was unbelievable and inspiring. And, you know, from there, he's ended up down at Luton in yeah. a really senior role. And you only have to look at where Luton have gone in that time to go, OK, he's had a pretty strong impact there. So, yeah, there was a little bit of a boom. I would say it's kind of fallen off a little bit now, and mm-hmm. I'll probably talk about why um, at some point. I'm sure we'll get to discussing that. But yeah, you're completely right. And it was around COVID when we were all trapped indoors, um, when scouts couldn't really get out to games as easily, um, and when football was very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, fr- from there, there's been this generation of us, really. And you know, I'm 23 in my full-time role, um, and I've got several friends and colleagues that at clubs, you know, in League Two and even as high as kind of like the championship that are my age and doing really well for themselves. Even from my own experience, I got into freelance work during COVID because it's all you could really do. You know, I, I started writing articles and I yeah. sent my CVs off and people, some people picked it up, hundreds didn't. But, you know, some people did pick it up and thankfully I've been able to do that for a few years. It was fascinating that that COVID era, there was obviously a a massive downside but there were some positives in terms of working from home and things like that but actually you just you said something about maybe why twitter isn't as great now for for seeing analysis work i think it's actually probably a good time to talk about now because there's a lot of people on twitter and there's a lot of nonsense now and i see it all the time in analysis work there's so much nonsense i mean i worked with i worked as the lead editor of a company for a while for you know, an analysis company that would post analysis articles. 
there was so much even when i was on twitter and i was trying to read and get inspiration from other pieces from last year and this year it's just so much nonsense people write nothing and then they get an obscene amount of followers and now it's not helped by the fact that you can buy a subscription and get your work saying what do you, what do you make of that what's your kind of well, I think the reasons behind that are actually probably quite positive in that the figureheads and the real leaders within that have all been snapped up, mm. which is great. And it's and it's absolutely fantastic for them and fantastic for me. Um, but obviously, then you lose your leaders in that field and there isn't maybe the right inspiration anymore. Mm. And I think, obviously, you've got the underlying issue of the fact that, you know, and people talk about clickbait, but I think the way that that is now in 2024 is that, you know, people will post provocative things that they know people will disagree with because, unfortunately, that's how algorithms work and that's how you get more people to see your content and you get more followers. And I think these days, the people that, you know, and there will be exceptions to the rule, but these days what I see a lot of the people that are after followers and a blue tick rather than to transition from mm. fan analysis to yeah. analysis within within the sport professionally. So... Yeah, I think it's probably those things combined, really. Yeah, I, I agree. Just as I said, there's a lot of there is a lot of nonsense, as you said. People will put stuff up that they know mm-hmm. others won't agree with, and it gets followers, and that's fine. I understand, as you said, that's how the algorithm works. It just means that quality analysis on Twitter, especially, is diluted. I think probably the, the best the best place for it now is probably LinkedIn, I suppose, because yeah. Twitter again. I mean, even I, I'm someone who loves reading analysis work on, on Twitter. It rarely comes up in my algorithm anymore because it's always posts from... Like say, it is positive. It's great that clubs up and down this country mm-hmm. and abroad as well have, have snapped them up. And, you know, rather than, you know, there's a friend of mine called Andy Watson who's a, a Blackburn Rover supporter. He produced a, you know, it's like a hundred page summer recruitment transfer document um, during COVID, which went into every position in the Blackburn team and who they could recruit and went into insane amounts of detail, the detail that you would expect from the recruitment analyst at the club. And he actually now does have a position at Blackburn. Mm. And that is the prime example. Um, Sadly and brilliantly, all of the best of the best have been taken. Yeah. When did you realise that working in football was a real possibility for you? Um, So... Someone that I connected with on Twitter who's called Liam Henshaw, who people might oh, yeah. with quite a lot, um, who is, you know, I was talking about the figureheads of that movement. He was very much one of them. Um, he managed to get himself a job at Wigan Athletic, and I was born in Wigan. Um, so I remember talking to him about that at the time a little bit. And I think, as the story goes, roughly two weeks after he arrived at Wigan, he got a call from um, the head of recruitment at Heart of Midlovian Football Club in Edinburgh to say, oh, would you like to come and work for us? And he said, oh, sorry, I've just taken a job at Wigan. Um, and um, and Will, Will Lansfield, the head of recruitment up there, said to him, well, you know, if you know of anybody that's interested, that's trying to get in, um, then let me know. And, and he'd passed on a couple of names, including mine, which I wasn't aware of. And I was just at home one day after work randomly, and I got a call from, from Will and... He said, look, I've heard that you're interested, which actually, you know, I wasn't actively pursuing it whatsoever. Um, I was doing some academy scouting with Blackburn, um, you know, just as a side thing, voluntary. I wasn't getting paid for it. Mm. Um, And yeah, he was like, yeah, I've heard you're interested. So straight away I was like, okay, well, yes, I am. Um, And he kind of told me about what they were looking for. And and that was it, really. I moved into the part-time world. So I kind of went from 
voluntary, didn't really see it as a career, to all of a sudden like, oh, I'm getting paid to do this and it's the senior environment. Um, and that was when I started to go, oh, right, okay, now I need to do more qualifications. I need to map out what this looks like and how I can make a career out of this. Um, but yeah, I think it's really interesting that even at that stage, I wasn't aware that this was an option for me. So I think, you know, this conversation here, I think it's really important that younger people are aware that this is something that you can go into. Mm. Just speaking of that, and you've talked about qualifications, how important were qualifications as opposed to your own learning, whether it be from stuff online, stuff on Google, you know, anything, even on Twitter, you know, learn from other people. How important were the qualifications? Because oftentimes there is a bit of a, de of a debate about how qualifications are. Some people believe they're not as important as we make them out to be. Do you think in your own experience, they were really important for your own learning process to become a better scout? Well, I think they were completely irrelevant. I mean, at the time I got the call, from Will at Hearts, I just had an FA talent ID level one, um, like I said, because I hadn't really done much with it. Now, yes, you know, that was a pretty big luck chance that that phone call happened. And if it didn't, then yeah, at some point I probably would have gone on and done like my PFSA or my S4 scouting, which I, I have since done. Um, but no, for me personally, my experience was they weren't relevant at all. Um, I say to people that ask for my advice, well, you know, I get messages on LinkedIn and emails and stuff, and it's much more about who you know than what you know, mm -hmm. um, which I know people say about every industry, but it's so true with this. Um, I feel like with performance analysis, um, i.e. analysts that are working with the team and, and analysing the upcoming opposition and they're in the training ground every single day, et cetera, et cetera. There is a set route. So you go to university, you study performance analysis, you get an internship at a club, you try and get a job there. And if you don't, you get a job elsewhere. And there's this route, basically. Whereas with recruitment, there is no traditional route. The traditional route used to be player, coach, recruitment. Um, that isn't really a thing anymore. There are some people who've gone from performance analysis to recruitment analysis because they prefer it. But yeah, for people like me and for other people who would be interested, like there isn't a set route in. The qualifications are pretty meaningless. Um, mm. There are no requirements. You don't, all you need is your FA Talent ID level one and you can be at Wembley watching England versus France. It, 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 you know, there isn't, a, there isn't a union. There isn't a set rules. Um, it's quite relaxed actually. And it probably shouldn't be. And there's probably a separate conversation about what does need to be brought in in terms of, professionalizing this side of the industry but yeah it's much more about the networking and getting your name and your face out there and then hopefully someone calls you yeah well i mean speaking of that i i don't want to upset anyone but i did some qualification i should say i won't name which ones i did but for the football association of ireland a few years ago yeah genuinely the biggest lot of nonsense i've ever done in my life yeah i learned way more from my own you know from my own learning and, and trying to find articles and, and looking at how coaches do different things as opposed to like doing a course. Well, what, I, what I find as well is that the, the talent ID qualifications are very much geared towards academy work Yeah, because that is talent identification. You're going out and you're finding young players who've not been spotted yet and it's talent ID. But what I do is not talent ID. Nobody mm. works at senior recruitment is not identifying talent. They're all talented. They're all professional footballers who get paid to play football. 
And I always get, you know, Brenda from the shop and my aunt and everyone else will say, have you seen any good players recently? And I always say, yes, obviously, because they're all good. Um, so we don't do talent ID. We do KPI matching and recruitment. Yeah. It's a totally different world. And I think these qualifications just aren't set up for that. Um, the PFSA ones, which I did, I did the level three, they, they get a little bit closer. Mm. Um, but everybody's doing them. There's 500 people doing them every month. And there's only so many clubs and so many jobs. So I, th- I tell people to forget the qualifications. I mean, obviously do the basics that you need. But yeah, like you've just said there, you'll learn more off your own back and just go and upskill yourself. Go and get some other skills that, that the qualifications won't give you. People seriously underestimate how good players are and even something like a league two. If you if you we could take I know it's quite subjective, but we could literally take the worst player in league two, whoever that may be, and put him in a five aside cage with you and I, and he would look like Messi. And I mean that. People seriously don't understand the level. Like the best player that could have been in your school per se, and he's playing at like National League or League Two, he compared to like the rest of the people that are in that school, he looks phenomenal. He looks absolutely standout. And it's seriously like the level is unbelievable. So that's why you should appreciate always the top level talents because you think you can watch. Like I remember um, during the summer when the Premier League preseason camp was doing, like they were putting the cameras on the players and there was one on Yuri Tillemans. Yeah. He was came up and honestly, Joe, I, I was I out breath. I was out breath watching, and that's that. a friendly as well. Yeah, it's a friendly. It's obscene, and like he's grabbing the ball, and then someone's pressing, he's moving and buying, he's in next base, and I'm thinking, wow, yeah. I'm genuinely dizzy looking at this video. It's on the level is absolutely unbelievable. Just speaking about talent ID, there, what is the difference then in in terms of apart from like you already when you're looking at players to recruit, you know they're good players. What kind of work goes into talent ID then? What because I think people have this idea that a scout just goes to the back arse of, of Brazil or Argentina and, and you know, he's, it's it's not how it works. How, how does it work? You you, you tell the, the listeners. Well, I mean, you know, look at where clubs recruit players from. Scouts aren't going watching, you know, Sunday league football mm. um, to find players at the end of the day. That's, that's the first thing, you know, because I get a lot of that. I get a lot of, can you come and watch me play for my under-14s team? And, you know... I'm at roughly three and a half games a week on average, three or four, depending on the PL2 schedule. And effectively, I'm watching League One, League Two, National League, the Premier League Two, sometimes some under-18s football. I'm watching footballers that have already made it. You know, So that's why I say it isn't talent ID, because somebody has already identified their talent, usually 15 years ago. Mm. Uh, you know, the, There's no questioning that they have ability. My job and the job of recruitment analysts and scouts at professional football clubs is to match key performance indicators, i.e. what we want from a right back, and say, well, does he fit that? Um, at, at the end of the day, if Liverpool have got a right back in their under-21s, um, and he's been there for 12 years, the kid can play. Mm. You know, I'm not there to tell anybody whether that kid's good at football, because he is. The question is, is he quite what we're looking for? Because there are 50 right-backs playing PL2 football over a two-year period at all of these different clubs. So which one do we want? Well, we want him to be five foot ten. Um, we want him to be at least 18, 19. We want him to be quite filled out. He needs to be quick. Um, we prefer him to use a box pass than a cross. 
um, you know, he's got a long throw, anything. These key performance indicators where we go, what do we want from a right back? Mm. Um, and and then you're shortlisting down. So we, we're data first. Everybody's, you know, uses data now. But I think people underestimate that clubs such as Barrow AFC in League Two are, are huge on data. I mean, we partner with StatsBomb. Where everything that we do comes through our data pipeline. It's completely customised to us and the way that we want to do things. So everything we do comes through this process. And when I'm going out to watch a player, I already know a lot about him. He's already good. We're not deciding whether he's good. We're saying, okay, we're Barrow AFC. This is what we want. This is what we're looking for in a player. Does he fit? And that's why I call it KPI matching. Mm -hmm. And that's much more similar to what somebody who works in non-football recruitment would do. Um, you know, I've actually got a friend who works in normal recruitment and our jobs are not worlds apart, really. It's the same thing. It's just a different profession. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest misconception is that people think that our job as scouts is to go out to games and report back and say, hiya, Gaffer, I've just seen a good player. Yeah, he's good. Because, you know, they're all good, aren't they? And that's that's the key thing for me. That, that, that's a, just a brilliant point, actually. I was taking everything you said in because it's something I think about absolutely all the time. And as you said, as I said earlier, I just think people have such a misconception about what scouting is. But at a club like Barrow, mm. you will obviously have you know a limited budget in what you you are able to use to sign players. There's different pressures that come with that, obviously, and. For re- recruitment analysts at say the highest level, or scouts, or even managers, etc., whoever spends the money, sporting directors, like for example, say an Anthony when he joined Manchester United for obscene money, that yeah. club will have obscene money. The pressure is obviously signing a player for that obscene money. There's no risk of Manchester United going into administration, for example. But when you're at a club like Barrow and you make when you sign a player and he's worth a good chunk of that budget. Do you feel that pressure? Because I've asked a lot of scouts in the past, they all give you kind of varying answers, yes or no. But do you feel that pressure of of when you sign a player and you really want this to work out? Well, I'm very lucky at the moment because I'm not in the senior position. Mm-hmm. And we have a sporting director who, you know, across every single facet of the football club, takes on everybody's pressure, holds it within and then deals with it. Uh, and that is kind of the role of a modern day f- uh, director of football, sporting director. So, you know, I'm very lucky in that the final decisions aren't made by me, um, which then also does protect you a little bit. But of course, I'm feeding information in direct to say this player matches and this player doesn't. And then, of course, if they come in and it doesn't work out, it can be frustrating, but you're never going to get them all right. Um, mm. We're not robots and and it would be unrealistic. And if you could get them all right, then you would be priceless every single football in the every single football club in the country would be trying to bring you in because you are the best in the world at what you do. And it isn't like that, really. Um, The key thing is just presenting the information, giving the decision makers the most information you possibly can um, and and letting them take that weight, really. And then for me in the future, if I end up in a position where I'm a decision maker and, and that responsibility lies with me, then yeah, I think there is a conversation to say football is a very volatile industry. Mm. It must be very difficult to handle that pressure, much like it's difficult for a manager to handle the pressure. Every fan believes that they can do a better job. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a cutthroat industry. Um, but I don't get too down with the downs, and we try not to get too up with the ups either. 
Um, I would say it's the fans' job to get excited and it's the fans' job to get frustrated. It's our job to stick to the plan, basically, because that's what you make a plan for. And, you know, do I sit here and honestly tell you that we planned to be fighting for promotion this season? No. Um, you know, I think we believed that we could be very competitive based on the season we had the season before um, under the manager's guidance. Um, but, you know, sometimes these plans take on a, a life of their own and then it's getting not too high with those mm. outcomes because we now sit where we sit. Everybody then gets excited. And then if you then fall back to a, a median of where you actually expected to be, everybody's disappointed. Whereas actually that was the plan, you know, to be here. So, yeah, it's trying to stay neutral, trying to stay grounded. So, of course, we've signed players and previous clubs have been at Hearts before as well, um, signed players that don't work out. And that is what it is. But there can be so many reasons for that. Um, you could sign a player that makes so much sense based off what you saw on your eye, on the data, on the video. Everybody's watched him. You maybe even got him in the building on trial for two weeks, training, and he played in a pre-season friendly. And you've all said, absolutely, yes, definitely, he's the one. And then it still doesn't work out because anything can happen. You've got, obviously, injuries, relocation, mm -hmm. social factors. You know, there's so much. So, yeah, I think as scouts, it's our job to just rise above <laughs> It, you mentioned the cutthroat kind of nature of the industry. I obviously I I have to tread carefully with what I say, but I knew somebody, let's say in the last two years, that worked with a club in the unique. I think they were League One at the time, um, and they brought in some players that were maybe let's say young, they were young and were kind of unproven at that level, and then he unfortunately lost his job very quickly after it. I mean that's one transfer window and he's yeah. it's gone. It's quite devastating. Like, like people forget stuff like that. And he didn't obviously like he didn't mean for, for, for the, the players not to work <laughs> out with the club. You never do. You, 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 you are determined that they will work out and that's what happened. But stuff happens. Stuff just happens. Players come in, they don't settle in. It's, this is, this is what happens. But what well, I want you've to got, ask, you've got 24 sorry. teams, 24 teams yeah. in a division um, and every single team, believes that what yeah. their plan is will keep them in that division or get them promoted or whatever their achievement will be. Nobody goes into a season trying to finish in the bottom two. Mm -hmm. um, I'm talking about League Two here, obviously, because we have two relegation spots. Um, but as you just mentioned just before about how volatile it can be in the budgets and, and decision-making, I mean, we've all seen the news about Rochdale this week. Yeah. Um, we train in Manchester, which not many people know. Um, we're I, did, actually... I didn't know it until a few weeks ago when yeah, someone, so someone you spoke to told the, me. Yeah. yeah, we're one of the secret M60 clubs. So, <laughs> you know, when you think of the M60 clubs, you think Bury Oldham, yeah. Rochdale, Stockport, kind of Bolton, et cetera, et cetera, mm. Salford. But actually we're in there um, in East Manchester and that's where we're based. And obviously we travel up to Barrow for games, but we're very much based in Manchester. The staff base is all based, you know, in and around Manchester, Liverpool, Yorkshire. So we are a Manchester club. And when you see what happened with Bury and what could potentially be happening with Rochdale and obviously Oldham getting relegated into the National League, you know, M60 football has kind of died a little bit, but mm. Stockport and, and Salford and, and, also ourselves in the background are kind of keeping it going, but Rochdale are proving at the moment that it, it unfortunately, despite best intentions all the time, mistakes can be catastrophic. And then of course that's where 
people like your friend there that you mentioned, you, you end up losing your job or you end up having to leave prematurely where a plan's not been seen out. Mm. Uh, and it happens with managers as well, of course, with within the coaching world. So there's no protection. There's nowhere to hide in football, really. This podcast is sponsored by the wonderful people over at NordVPN. The 2023-24 campaign is set to draw to a close, but the football never truly stops. With the Olympics, Euro 2024 and the new season set to commence in no time, make sure you don't miss any of the action wherever you may be in the world by downloading NordVPN. For just the price of one cup of coffee per month, NordVPN allows you to watch your favourite teams, players, shows and movies anywhere in the world, even if they aren't available in your region, simply by switching the location on your device to one which is showing the content. NordVPN also acts as your cyber bodyguard, protecting your personal data and other sensitive information such as credit cards and passwords from falling into the wrong hands, which is always a worry when you travel abroad. And with just one subscription to NordVPN, you can use this service across six different devices, which is incredibly handy if you're traveling with your family and or loved ones. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com forward slash real EFL. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, and you'll help support our podcast too. The link is in the podcast episode description box. So now, back to the podcast. Away days are great, especially when your striker bags a last-minute winner, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. And do you know what? The same goes for McDonald's. Why not maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery? Are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Let's talk about data because for a lot of people that's a scary word. Um, some people are <laughs> resistant to it and they don't like the use of data in it. But I think sometimes it's almost misinterpreted that people think you'll look at Scout and you'll look at a list of, of data and then you'll sign a player off that. And obviously, yeah, never the case. What is the, I suppose, how open is, is like, say, Pete Wilde to using data when you're, you know, in the recruitment process or even the sporting director of Barrow as well, Ian, like stuff like that. How, how open is, is the club itself? Not just because mm. obviously you can only speak for, for Barrow, you can't speak for every club, but how yeah. open is, is Barrow at using data when recruiting players and, and almost... How important is it compared to, say, the eye test? Well, I'll try actually first to speak for every club because not there aren't any clubs that don't use data. That's mm. the first thing that I always say to people who are like, oh, no data, <laughs> Brighton, Brentford, XG. Man. I just think, well, listen, if you support one of the 92, that club is using data. Yeah. And 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 not just within recruitment. And and people have to accept that data is just a part of our lives now. I think people are some people are scared of what data actually means. And I don't think that the type of data analysis you often see on Sky Sports and TNT Sports is very helpful either. Um, you know, actually some of the stuff that Jamie Carragher started doing in, in kind of last year has has improved and you think, oh, okay, and you know it's actually quite impressive, but up until pretty recently, it's really rudimentary stuff where you can see that a really clever analyst or statistician has put together a graphic and the person who's on the panel going through it doesn't have a clue what it means. Well, Sky have a stats guy now. They they, they use a stats guy. And yeah. I, I even I know that I had I interviewed uh, Dr. John Harrison before who has 
goalkeeper.com and he for me has almost like revolutionized goalkeeper analytics and mm. Jamie Carragher used his stats on Sky last season I thought that was absolutely unbelievable I think it was for Allison or at Liverpool unbelievable so they, they have a stats guy I think that's so cool 100% I mean there's a lot of data analysis that isn't in the public domain so like the goalkeeper stuff you just mentioned mm. but there's so much um, that just isn't used publicly isn't used on television that we're using behind the scenes um, you know, StatsBomb, the guys at StatsBomb, I don't want to advertise for them, but the stuff that they produce is fantastic. They've worked with us to create custom metrics and, you know, the stuff that we can pull through on players is fantastic. But to actually answer your question about the club's emphasis on data and how much we lean on it, you know, we, we like to pull players through our data pipeline initially. I think it's a really good screening tool. Um, obviously, you're not going to sign a player just based off data. Mm. However... I think data can write off players pretty quickly. Um, you know, you might still have a little look on video to confirm that, but it can be quite useful on that front. Um, but yeah, we we very much care about the live scouting. So like I say, I'm at like three, four games a week watching players. Yes, I will look at their data before I go and I will factor in some of the knowledge that I've already got. The stuff that the data can't tell us, you know, the data that we have at League Two level doesn't tell us how quick a player is or what distance he's covered. Premier League clubs probably do have access to mm. that kind of information these days, but we certainly don't. Um, so there are things that you need to go and see with your eye. We're huge on character. Um, and I should say that the gaffer is huge on character as well. Um, we talk about what it means to be a Barrow player and what those characteristics look like. Um, and, and data can't really tell you that. That's when you go and you watch the warm-up and you watch how a player reacts when his team concedes and you watch how they interact socially on the bench and you see these moments in games where you get a feel for a player's character and say, yeah, they're us or they're not us. Um, so, yeah, the live scouting absolutely marries up with the data scouting and the video stuff. There are some clubs um, who are quite happy to advertise this fact anyway, but I won't mm. name just in case um, there's two in league one that don't do any live scouting anymore. Um, they're purely video and database. Now, you know, I have my opinions on that. I think other people have their opinions on whether that's the right way to go about it. Um, and I could understand a fan saying, you know, we shouldn't rely too heavily on the data or on video and we should be watching players live. So that's our philosophy at Barrow. You know, we, we use the data, we, we get out and see the player live, especially in the summer window. We'll bring them in the building, get them in for a week, get eyes on them. And I think the key thing, the, the thing that's great about the manager is that we do have quite a collaborative decision-making process. Um, you know, I, I'll use an example of a player that we signed from Ireland, um, you know, over 12 months ago now, Rory, Rory Feely. Um, so he flagged up on the data, went over to Dublin to see him and, um, we came back and said, okay, we got him in the building for a week uh, just before the January window. Everybody watched him then. Um, and by the end of the period that we'd had him with us, we, you know, we've, we've seen him for a week in person. So the coaches have an idea. We've watched several games of his on video. We've watched him live um, and the data's backing up everything that we, we, we think and everything we say. And we sat around a table and we all said, yeah, I think this is the right call. And look, they're not all going to go that way. They're not all going to be perfect where you can get every single piece of information. Sometimes it's deadline day and mm. you've got to make a quick decision. I mean, we've just made a sign-in in the last window. Um, we signed Cole Stockton, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, was that a huge, massive, long process? Or, or do some players turn your head a little bit where you go, well, 
Um, so, yeah, there's always a process that you're trying to stick to. Um, I think that the sporting director's philosophy to include all of it, including the live scouting, is really important. And, yeah, I mean, of course, I think we do it right because it's our process and I'm part of that. And I think that we do it the right way, but there'll be other clubs who think that they do it the right way. Somebody told me before that I think it's a, a great piece of advice that, or not really a piece of advice, it's more of a statement that everyone has a, a process until deadline day and things can <laughs> change pretty quickly, you know, when, especially because, like, you know, I suppose at a club like Bar, maybe at Manchester United, you can go out and you can spend obscene money and get your number one target. That won't be the case for the for really most of the clubs under like the top six of English football. You'll have to have, yeah, you know, lists and how how big did those shortlists get? Because I actually my favorite my favorite memory from the, I think it was season one of Sunderland until I die is they had when they had yeah. Ibrahimovic on the list. I know uh, people bring that up a lot, but it's absolutely golden. Um, but how 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 big are those shortlists when you're looking we, for players? We try to to keep away from um, shortlisting, longlisting. Hmm. We we have lists of information where, you know, we'll have players' names and, and conversations with agents and this, that and the other, where we keep notes on players. But we try not to really whittle down too much. What we do, um, we have a recruitment meeting with the manager once a month, um, you know, where we talk about a select number of players. The manager will go away and watch them. We'll keep doing what we're doing on the recruitment side. Um we just know really we have these we have conversations constantly we're just always chatting basically um i think it's important not to shortlist and not to shortlist early either because if you say right these are our top three for left back Hmm. um, and then all three become not viable very quickly for whatever reason well what was the point yeah Um, you may as well have a list of 50 left backs that you've ranked in order um you know which ones you like, you've watched the ones you like, you've had conversations about them, and then see what happens, basically. And all of a sudden, you'll get a call about a completely random player that you didn't think was available, and it throws a spanner in the works. So you've just got to be ready to move, I suppose. But I I hate the term shortlisting. And, and despite it's such a media any, term, isn't it? I'm guilty of it myself. Yeah, and despite what term. any club will tell you, nobody gets their number one. Nobody yeah. gets their A target, you know, outside of the big clubs with all the big money. You know, everybody ends up, for whatever reason, the player doesn't want to move. He's just signed a new contract. He doesn't want to live in this area of the country. Um, We're not offering enough wage-wise or whatever. There's so many reasons, obviously. Um, But, yeah, I hate it, shortlisting. There's a lot of that as well, actually. Like, football manager, you know, there's a lot of that where it is quite realistic. And I love football manager. It's a great game. There's a lot of it where you go, well, it isn't like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, there was actually a really good segment on not to, not to like plug or a podcast, but there was a brilliant segment on the overlap a couple of weeks ago where they talked about sporting directors and the role of sporting directors, and you were different kind of like Gary Neville, of course, would have the experience of being an owner, and he has sporting directors and uh, uh, Chris Casper, I believe it is at, at, at yeah. Stafford City at the moment, yeah, a brilliant guy, but he, you know, come from a, from an owner point of view. Then you had like Roy Keane, who, who was managing at Sunderland, and Ipswich, he didn't, but he was talking about agents, and he said. He would like get calls from agents like ten times a day, especially on deadline day. You're getting calls from agents. Like, this guy's great. What it, like? How important is to have a good relationship with agents? Because Gary Neville also said that yeah. you need to have a good relationship with agents because they will sometimes represent several players. And if you let's say wrong them, then you'll miss out on 
future targets. What is like? Why is it so so important? Because I know a lot of people don't really like Asians, as I say, but they are important, unfortunately. Well, I think to to the general public and very often to us as staff on the club side of the game, an agent is an agent, and we see them as business people. Yeah. Um, but for the footballers, they're not business people. They're not agents. They are, you know, their person, the person they rely on for emotional support. It could be family members as well. Yeah, yeah you get a lot of that as well. Mm. And, uh, you know, agents are very close with their players in mm. most cases. Um, you know, players absolutely rely on them for so much. So I think the reason you need a good relationship with agents and agencies in general is that, they they kind of hold the power a little bit because they have so much influence over so many of, of, of the players. I mean, you know, at our level, there are still a select amount of players that maybe aren't uh, with an agent or aren't particularly that bothered about who they're with. And you do see movement. Some players do leave their agent. You see a lot of younger players go with the big agencies when they're kind of in under-21s football and then go, oh, right, I'm just a number in the cog here. Um, and then they end up with someone who cares about them a little bit more closely, mm. et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, the, those relationships are key to maintain. It's probably one of the main parts of the job in terms of on the phone, you know, taking those calls and just keeping in touch with people really, um, you know, especially ahead of transfer windows, especially when you're, you're thinking about who you might like. You don't want to spend five months tracking a player if there's absolutely no interest whatsoever from the agent to, send the player to your level or whatever so yeah, they give you information as well you know we like to do our digging you know we'll we'll get references on I, I didn't mention that before obviously you know that extra layer we personal references from former players that have played with them and coaches and mm. other people that know them so you know there's there's so much of that yeah and people also like don't know this as well but I feel like in the last couple of years it's become a bigger thing Agents also have access to data now, and they'll have their own data of clubs that will suit yeah, their client. Which it winds, sounds bizarre. It winds yeah. me up. Yeah, I don't like it. The, the um, best example was Memphis Depay. Actually, he he said yeah. his people scouted Leon as the perfect club for him after Manchester United, and he went to Leon, and he did really well there. And like, I think that's mental. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, players have started to hire analysts now, yeah. which. Is- which is crazy. I mean, actually, you know, if anybody, you know, if any huge players want to give me a bell and offer me, maybe it's not crazy. But to me, it's pretty mental. Agencies have analysts now. You know, the reason I get frustrated with that is that we have a very specific data pipeline in the mm. way that we like to do it. So other people's data analysis is so irrelevant to us because I can't compare it with another player from our cohort because it's set out completely differently and the metrics that you're using are totally random. Um, sometimes agents will send us physical info, you know, because like I said before, we don't have access to running data and speed. And mm-hmm. sometimes we'll get agents sending us that information. It's like, right, well, we don't really have much to compare that with. We could compare it to our squad, um, but we can't really compare it to everybody else in our cohort from the recruitment side. So yeah, I get why they do it. I, I suppose to an extent, I understand why some of these bigger name footballers are hiring analysts to do this kind of work for them. Um, you know, footballers, especially on the higher end, uh, are aware that they get four moves in their career and they want to get them right at the end of the day. Um, so the example you used there with Depay, you know, as much as it might seem like overkill, I suppose I can understand it. Um, is it 
is it a sales technique? Is it a way for the agents to say, oh, well, you should absolutely take him because we've identified you. You know, is that actually just strong negotiating? I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, you're right to mention that. It is something that's happening more and more. Players are filled with so much, I suppose, data from all sides now because they'll have, as you said, data from their agents. They'll have data from the club itself, coaches, and and then they'll have their own people, whether it be dietitians or, or physios, etc. I'm talking kind of elite, like Premier League football here, because obviously it's yeah. you know they'll they'll just have a ridiculous amount of money. But <laughs> I just find it I just find it fascinating. Like it's it's mm. so strange. It's also really interesting because there's so much more you know, kind of bringing the podcast full circle. There's so much more opportunities for different people in football now. You know, players, as you said, players hire individual coaches to do one-to-one work at home uh, in their own back gardens. And, and, you know, they have their own data from their agents and then they're getting data at the clubs. Like there's just so much opportunities for people. Also, not to put you on the spot, but how does... The plan, because people think that when the transfer in the ends, you take a nice exhale and then you all chill out. It absolutely just never works like that in football, does it? You're just straight way back into a plan for the summer. But how does the current kind of table dictate the plan in the summer? Because things will be might be slightly different if if you do go up. You know, you might have a bit more room in the budget, etc. Is that difficult to kind of work with the uncertainty? Well, I suppose. I think maybe again, maybe football manager kind of has a little bit to blame for this in terms <laughs> of that it works and, and people's perception, but we're always working a window ahead. So, you know, since October, we've been thinking about the summer. Wow. You know, so between the season starting in August and October, we're thinking about January, but then from my perspective, my job's done. It, it's on to, to the sporting director, to the manager, to then make those decisions within the window and mm. the owners to approve things. So, me personally, I've been thinking about the summer for a long, long while, um, and and when we get to May and the summer and the season finishes, then you start thinking about after the summer. So, it's you know, people underestimate how much time and thinking and planning goes into these things. So, yeah, there are plans for whatever outcome. Um, and like I say, I'm not a huge fan of shortlisting and this, that, and the other. I wouldn't say that the sporting director is either. The key thing is knowing who you like and who you don't like and having the information from the agents written down somewhere and seeing where things take you. I think we just have to be patient. We can't rush things. Um, the worst thing that a club could do now is spend three months planning for a season in League One that doesn't come. Yeah, uh, That would be pointless. Um, mm. However, yeah, you don't want to be completely not prepared. It's it's a really tough question. Um, but yeah, we're, we're pretty pretty chilled really i think it, you've got to just be reactive in these situations well Jürgen klopp gave people a little insight to that recently didn't he when he said that he sat down i think it was like september to talk about the summer transfer plans and people were like summer transfer plans in september the transfer window had just closed i'm like yeah that's genuinely how it works it's 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 crazy people think it's just like january 4th comes around and bang you all start working it's never the case is it it's crazy no and and these days you know clubs are you know, there are even contracts now with with the players that you do mm. have. You, you, if you offer a player a deal in, in a September, October of one year, then that means you're already thinking about the following summer because that's a section of the budget for the next three or four seasons that you're then not using on an external player. So, you know, especially for, for Ian, for the, for the director of football, 
those are the key moments where you've got to be looking far ahead. You've got, in League Two, you know, you will not see many players on big, long four or five year contracts because unfortunately that's not what the finances yeah. of the division dictate. But, you know, our longer contracts, which might be contracts where players are contracted for two years plus an option or whatever, mm. you know, got to be major considerations as to, okay, well, in 2025, 2026, will this player be good enough for what we want to be doing? You know, and those conversations come into it massively. And sometimes you're tracking a player where you say, well, He's not out of contract for 18 months, but we'll keep an eye on him. And when he is out, he might be for us. So we all know who we like. Every club knows who they like for what they're trying to do. Um, you very often find that you're fishing in the same waters as certain clubs because you have a, a similar style, a similar philosophy. Um, so, yeah, no, it's it. you're just preparing for all the eventualities, basically. Even like my club in, in Ireland that I support Shelbourne, I remember when Damien Duff came uh-huh. in because players usually get well, players usually get one or two year contracts if even, and like Damien Duff came in after uh, Ian Morrison in twenty twenty two and and it was just an entirely new squad bar I think maybe two players it's obscene yeah. like the, the entire squad changed because everyone got everyone's out of contract you know you yeah. bring free agents in it's insane like the, the turnover of, uh, you know when yeah. you have a limited budget is it's crazy because because players can't sign. You know what did what did uh, Michaela Mudrick sign a ten year deal or something? Yeah, you can't sign that that level. You just can't. Lastly, Joe, before we before we wrap up, what's you know we talked about plans and recruitment. What's what's your let's say five year plan? Then do you have a, a plan of where you want to reach one day? Or are you kind of just taking it a step at a time? I don't know if people will believe me, really, but I I love it at Barrow. Um, I absolutely love what what we do. I love working for a a club of Barrow's stature and, and I love working in League Two. I enjoy my relationships with the sporting director and with the manager and I enjoy going to the training ground a couple of times a week and, and being around the lads and being around the, the staff. Um, you know, I've got friends that work at bigger clubs. They're shut away in their own little office. They don't really see anybody. Um, is that what I want to do? I don't know. I don't have a five-year plan. I certainly don't have a a, a one-year plan either. Mm. I really enjoy working with Ian, uh, the sporting director, and I think I'm pretty happy where I am, really. Um, are there things that maybe I'd like to achieve? I'm not sure. Um, I think initially when I first started all this, I, it was I want to work full-time in the game. I've achieved that now. Um, I want to be on Football Manager. I've achieved that. I've achieved that. You um, you came up straight away in Football Manager when I looked you up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... You know, I don't think there's much else. I think anything else would just be trivial like that, really. Nothing major. Um, I feel very privileged and very lucky to do what I do. Um, and if I get to do that at, at a great club like Barrow for the next 10 years, then, again, much like I think the fans will be happy for 10 years in League Two, I would be more than happy for 10 years at Barrow AFC. I love when the football manager comes out every year and everyone you maybe follow in that in that space on Twitter is posting saying, I'm in the game, I'm in the game. Well, actually, just sorry, I know I said last question. What was the first football manager you were in? Was it 22, I want to say? Oh, really? Okay. I think I managed to get in whilst at Hearts um, oh. listed as a part-time scout, um, which was like, oh, my God, you know. Um, What's it like seeing your attributes? Oh, they're awful. <laughs> you know, there's not much you can do. Is I mean, I think it's pretty impressive. They've got a lot of the information correct, which is quite cool. Um, although I never leave, you know, much like my last answer about staying at Barrow. I mean, my mates always jibe at me because they can never sign me. 
um, because my virtual self just refuses to go anywhere. <laughs> Maybe that's quite realistic. That's brilliant. Joe, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. And thank you so much for your incredible insight. It's been a pleasure. Uh, what are your plans for the weekend? Or for the week even, sorry. It's, it's, it's what's it, Wednesday now, God. Um, so, well, I'm, I'm actually going in for a surgery on Friday. Okay. Uh, dental surgery. So I'm not actually going out to a game this weekend. That's just reminded me. Um, so, yeah, kind of no more games this week now, which is good. Um We've got a few different staff members at games over the next few days, which I need to sort out tickets wise and whatnot. But no, pretty chill next few days and kind of step it back up again on Monday next week. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Joe, for coming on. And to everyone listening at home, make sure to drop a five-star rating if you enjoyed the podcast. And if you found Joe as insightful as I have, it means the absolute world to us. Thank you all for listening and goodbye for now. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. We understand that the journey as a supporter isn't always smooth sailing, but rest assured you're not alone. There's a vast network of fellow fans who share your passion and may be experiencing similar challenges. Honesty is key in any relationship. If your friend asks you how you are feeling, tell them honestly. If you're going through a difficult time, let them know. Open them up about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. It's the 90th minute and all your mates around watching your team on iFollow. You've got your McNugget share box on the go. And you know what? Your mates already got booked for double dipping. But then later on, you steal in, grab the last nugget and snatch all three points. Perfect. Why not order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app? You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.